After a lengthy hiatus, we are back and with a new series for The Crux of the Matter, Culturally Relevant Movie Reviews. I'm Landon Connor. And I'm Riley Stansberry. And this is a critique of The Shift, the first original film produced by Angel Studios, the creators of the global sensation The Chosen. On Rotten Tomatoes, The Shift currently has a 40% critic tomato meter and 87% audience score. And I think, as many people have noticed in recent years, it's actually a good sign that it's a pretty important, relevant film when there is a massive divide between critics and the audience. Mm. I don't know how many times we've seen recent films have that divide. Are you telling me the critics were wrong about Captain Marvel? I can't believe it. Just, just because it had like a 12% audience <laughs> review, that doesn't mean it was a bad movie. You know, you can't trust an audience. It's not like <laughs> the customer's always right. It's the audience is always wrong. Yeah. Right? Yes. <laughs> so we are here today. You, if you've listened to Crux of the Matter, probably know our original biases towards the film. And so first I want to say, we are trying to be as honest as possible with this film. We, like any other teenage young men, we want entertainment. We don't want this preachy sermon when we go to the theaters. And we do like that this can be a medium to get the Bible out to people who might not be willing to go to church or might not be willing to go watch some sort of sermon online. So this is the question is are Christian films entering a new generation? And is The Shift one of these films? I think the success of The Chosen has established Angel Studios as a force to be reckoned with. It was the largest crowdfunded film series ever. And this is what we're going to be talking about today. So again, Rotten Tomatoes has it with only 40% critics review, but 87% audience score. And Riley and I had the honor of having one of our friends invite us to watch it last weekend. And I think it left a pretty good impression, at least inspired us to want to make this review. So I will start with a quote. I'll have Riley read another one on Rotten Tomatoes. So here's the first one. Bruce Heasley first made The Shift as a 21-minute short, and there's just enough here to support a feature. So that was one of the top critics... Yeah, reviews. And the first issue I see with this one is that he's using an argument that once it was made short, so they drawed it out extremely lengthy just to make a full-length feature film for it, where we both agreed the first half of the movie, the pacing almost felt too fast. Yeah, it felt like they were trying to put tons of content all at once when they're explaining the character's backstory. And this is the part where spoilers come in. Caution! The following movie review contains spoilers for the 2023 PG-13 movie, The Shift. You've been warned. <laughs> Kevin, uh, because he's, you know, you're introduced to the character right in the beginning. There's a voiceover. He's not in his world. And then there's like some flashback to, you know, what his life was like before. He meets this great lady. Um, they're just talking at a bar. Then all of a sudden they're married. Then all of a sudden they like have a kid, yeah, and then all of a sudden they're like arguing on the phone, <laughs> and he gets hit by a car, and then yeah. all of a sudden he's in this different place, and you see Neil McDonough, uh, who introduces himself as the benefactor and kind of gives the ultimatum. But that whole first part of the movie is stuffing like tons of character backstory, and it's in a really condensed time period. Now, I think the pacing fixes itself mm -hmm. throughout the movie, but... You know, you could make criticisms of this movie, but the idea that 
there's not enough content to fill the two hours. I actually think that this could easily have been a two and a half hour movie if they wanted to take a little bit more time to flesh out the backstory and the characters. Yeah, maybe but a little this, extra plot element like backstory. Yeah, this well is developed. this is just a bad criticism of the movie. I completely disagree with it. <laughs> that they use the cause of the prior existence of a short feature film to then be the reason for why this one's too long. So what about the second one? Yeah, so the second one says, the shift works when the focus is on Kevin's drive and what pushes him through the darkness. The genre elements feel familiar and there's too much happening, but the humanity is there. Hmm. I can see this one. I think uh, the too much happening part, I don't think it really applies to the whole movie because really the pacing of the movie, it goes from bad to average to phenomenal. The way that they, and we'll get to this when we talk about what we like and didn't like in the movie, but the climax of the movie is drawn out just enough to really get you emotionally invested in the scene. And so I, you know, when he's at the very end, he's sitting in the not movie theater thing, but it's like the place where he can see other realities and he's trying to go back to, Kevin is trying to go back to his Molly because it's a multiverse movie, if you didn't know that already, <laughs> <laughs> which we'll talk about some more. But the climax scene when he's basically given an ultimatum by the benefactor uh, is really, really good and probably one of the best parts of the entire movie. So I think that that was really well managed. But yeah, this criticism here, um, I agree that it works when the focus is on Kevin because mm -hmm. when we get to like what we liked the most about it, um, Christoph Palaha, I don't know how you say his last name. Yeah, Christopher Palaha. Yeah, he mm -hmm. does a phenomenal job as Kevin in this movie. So really I, I think this is probably a fair criticism. I mean, I don't, I don't know about too much happening, but yeah, like that's, that's generally a fair criticism of the movie. Yeah, I agree because going in, I'm like, okay, Neil McDonough, who's in it, he's probably going to steal the show. And then Elizabeth Tabish, so she plays Mary in The Chosen, absolutely phenomenal actress. And so she actually, I think, was the least developed character of the film for being the main <laughs> ones. Uh, and... That was kind of a shock, but definitely, yeah, this Kevin guy, he comes in in his character, and he absolutely, yeah, stole the show. And it opens it up with this voiceover, and we'll get into this of what we liked, but uh, it was reminiscent of another film that I'll mention later, and how you just feel this gravity to his voice, and you definitely feel drawn in in a more first-perspective view as he's going through. Mm -hmm. And I think it's tied to the whole movie being this overarching vision of the Book of Job. And so the third quote from Rotten Tomatoes says, it's a dystopian yarn reimagining the book of Job in flawed but fascinating ways. Another one where they try to be nuanced in their approach, but really they're just kind of trashing the allegory view of it. Mm -hmm. um, where, yes, it's not a verbatim, here's this man in 2,000 years before the birth of Christ who is working out in a field, has his family die, God dare, or the Satan dares God to then cause this uh, hardship on him for years. Job remains faithful. He gets rewarded with twice as much as he had originally. Yes, it's not that story verbatim. It is this modern allegory. It's this modern kind of reimagination of what the book of Job would look like today and in a dystopian sci-fi world, which is Heasley's directing vision. Uh, and so flawed in the traditional sense, yes. I think whenever you mention the multiverse, there's always going to be problems. Even films as cinematically massive as The Avengers had plot holes because you can't actually plan out every little nuance that a multiverse will offer. And then at the same time, 
where it says fascinating ways, it was very original. Uh, for the first original film Angel Studios put out, they decided to lay down the gauntlet and set a bar. Mm-hmm. They could have treated it like some classic, uh, really cliche storyline of kind of two people meeting each other and falling in love and one being a non-believer, one being a believer. They somehow reunite, much more like a Hallmark single <laughs> storyline type film, and little. said, this is original, but it's really not. But yeah. no, they went original, and the critics did not like that. Mm-hmm. So, I yeah, I agree. There's some truth to some of these uh, reviews, and I'm definitely not going to say the movie is perfect. Far from it. But for a budget of about $6 million, and as of today, it's about broken even, it has delivered. And if entertainment's the goal and not a sermon, we'll get into this more, but it does the job. Would mm-hmm. I want to watch it again with my family? I can say yes. So I think that at a baseline level, has done its job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, I agree. So as we continue into the general plot, this is taken from Angel Studios, and so it says, in this modern-day retelling of Job, Kevin Garner, played by Christopher Palaha, embarks on a journey across worlds and dimensions to reunite with Molly, played by Elizabeth Tabish, his true love. The narrative unfolds as a dystopian drama and sci-fi thriller where a mysterious adversary, the Benefactor, played by Neil McDonoghue, disrupts Kevin's reality. Faced with infinite worlds and impossible choices, Kevin must navigate through an alternate reality, resisting the Benefactor's tempting offer of wealth and power. As survival hangs in the balance, Kevin fights to return to the familiar world he cherishes and the woman he loves. Going in, I had really... Besides seeing the trailer, mm-hmm. no idea what the film was going to be about. Yeah. I think we discussed earlier the advertising was just not there. Uh, you listeners, this might be your first time hearing about it. That's true. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know where I've seen it other than rent. I might have had one or two YouTube ads pop up. But unless you are really invested in everything Angel Studios is doing, it really suffered on the advertising front. Yeah. And we see other movies, like the Marvels, for instance, have kind of mixed advertising. I definitely saw quite a few trailers and stuff. And they also just bombed in the box office. So there's a larger cultural moment of questioning, are people wanting to see movies in theaters? There's certain films which have proven it's still true. Mm -hmm. I think Avatar 2, which came out last year, is an example. Or was it earlier this year? (laughs) I'm almost losing time. Yeah, me too. I have no idea. (laughs) And then some other films that have been phenomenal in the box office. Uh, so the ability for this film to break even on bare minimum advertising is another thing, which either one could argue they're just trying to pander to the Christian right and everyone's like, oh, we're going to watch this just because it agrees with my values, or they're going to say, this actually sounds interesting. And as we go through this, you can decide for yourself, is this a movie you will be interested by, or is it something that merely tries to appeal to Christians by themselves? Anything to add? Yeah, I... Uh... One thing I would say is that, you know, I had, first of all, at first I had zero expectation because I hadn't heard of the movie at all. You told me about it. Um, Our friend, who we won't name in the podcast, got to see it a little bit before us. um, And his his feedback was just he was a little confused about where the plot was going. Um, But I went and watched both alternative trailers uh, that were that Angel put out on YouTube. And it gave me like a general idea of where the movie was supposed to go. Um, and you know, I think there's kind of, there's kind of some truth to the idea that you carry low expectations coming in, they'll always get blown away. 
And I had low expectations, but not that low because Christian movies don't always even get shown in the theaters. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was like, okay, Neil McDonald will probably be good. Like, it's like a lot of these Christian movies. They mostly suck, and, like, Kirk Cameron is good in a couple of them. Kevin Sorbo's good in a couple <laughs> of them. Mel Gibson. <laughs> yeah, Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson movies are the exception of the rule because Passion of the Christ is, like, one of the best movies ever. All his right. historical films people love. Um, but for the most part, yeah, Christian movies, they're, they're really preachy. They come off as, you know, kind of clunky, and this was not the case at all. I mean, the, the cinematography was really well done. Um, there wasn't just one good actor. I think the supporting cast, supporting cast didn't knock it out of the park by any means, but it was believable, and that's the thing. Like the biggest, the biggest thing I take away from this movie is that the whole thing was believable. It wasn't a parody of real life, which Christian movies have a real problem, um, fiction yeah. and nonfiction, of coming off as um, they come off as parodies because the the bad guy is just so obviously <laughs> evil. You know, like in God's Not Dead, the Kevin Sorbo's professor is like oh, you can't talk about God in my classroom. Ah, like that's not, that didn't, yeah. that doesn't really happen to people. I mean, it does, but not in that way. Right, um, that obviously blatant. Yeah, they're yeah. informal. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, cultural atheism. So that's not the way it works. So that's what I mean by like a parody of real life. That's yes. not actually, that doesn't actually seem real. Whereas when you're getting introduced to Kevin before the really weird stuff with the benefactor happens, <laughs> uh, like Kevin actually seems like a completely normal guy. He's a completely yeah. believable normal guy. He's so. a stockbroker, for goodness sake. Yeah. I mean, how more normal can you get? Yeah. <laughs> but yes, if anyone's wondering, the 08-09 crisis was apparently as bad as Job's worst situation. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, that's the biggest plot issue at the movie I have. Yeah. <laughs> no. so you get, oh, that that that's me on the TV. I get fired. <laughs> you know, fired. like yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the 08-09 crisis was pretty bad, but it, I don't that think was. it was as bad as. Literally everything As in your entire life. That's the beauty. Away. Yeah. So, kind of starting on the plot, uh, again, going into what we liked and didn't like. It starts out with this overall color scheme and the music selection, I think, kind of uh, meta to the film itself was really well done. Angel Studios with The Chosen, I know specifically, the music selection is something they know its, its significance and they focus on heavily the music made you feel something in this film. Even when maybe the acting wasn't absolutely A-tier or the logical progression of the plot line wasn't following completely, you at least still felt in the movie uh, for, I'd say, 80 to 90% of it, uh, especially adding up to the climax and the beginning with his voiceover. Again, who they cast for Kevin with his voice, you just felt this gravity of the film and that he was someone lost in another reality, wanting to go home. Mm -hmm. And there's something which, again, that hero's journey in a really cool way, it almost played off just a very traditional hero's journey and then incorporated all these weird plot elements that uh, some of them I fought with, others I really enjoyed. So I'm curious if you thought the music, uh, the actors, anything else was really just stood out to you? Uh, I mean, yeah, like you were saying, Christoph Palaha, like you said, uh, you know, you really loved his voice. I thought that the way he sold, because he kind of goes from a normal guy to like after he escapes the benefactor, he's like being looked for by the benefactor's government in this dystopian alternate earth where the benefactor has taken over. Um, and 
he's a completely believable action, like normal guy turned action hero. That's a trope that we see over and over again in cinema. Um, and sometimes it's really poorly done, but I think it's really well done. It's like Bob Odenkirk in Nobody, um, hmm. one of the coolest fight scenes I've ever seen on YouTube where he beats wow. everyone up on a bus. Uh, <laughs> John Wick I wouldn't 2. quite 0. say he's good as John Wick, but John Wick is also like never talks. And there's a, there's a lot of dialogue going on in this movie. So he's more s- similar to like Jason Statham or something. Um, but he's a completely believable action hero, which is, which is a hard thing to sell. Like you're, you're Neil McDonough, like is the headliner in the movie posters, but Kevin's the main character, and for it to be kind of this actor who I'm not familiar with at all, yeah. never seen him in anything else, never heard his voice in anything else, he sells it very, very well. So to me, he was the highlight of the movie. Um, the music, I don't think the music like blew me away. It wasn't mm-hmm. like uh, me and you watched. Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, yes. uh, earlier this so, year, part one, because part two's not out yet. Um, and the music in that movie was phenomenal. I really liked the music in that movie. But the music in this movie was really well done, especially because they have to put in, in Christian movies, they have to do some Newsboys thing, just randomly <laughs> thrown in. And yeah. they were not like they were not doing that. Again, this movie, even though it's not like an all-time great movie or anything, and we can definitely like pick issues with it, it is head and shoulders above a lot of Christian movies. Like, and that's, that's a real accomplishment, so. Yeah. I think if the priority of the film was bringing entertainment into the Christian zeitgeist of culture and whatnot, they sound like they're doing it well right now. And so focusing specifically on likes or dislikes, what do you want to cover first? Do you want to go back and forth, likes and dislikes? I'll just go back focus? and forth. I cool. think uh, I'll go with one of the things I really liked, <clears throat> liked from this movie uh, Neil McDonough's take on the benefactor, who's sort of the allegorical character for Satan, because mm-hmm. this is sort of an allegory of Job. Also, before we get to that, actually, the allegory does not, I don't know if you felt this way, the allegory does not hit you over the top of the head, which That's, is fine to do sometimes. I'm a well-known fan of C.S. Lewis. <laughs> I like being hit over the head with allegory sometimes, um, which he can be more subtle too, but it's another conversation for another day. But like the lion is Jesus, you know. Whoa! I, I thought this allegory was actually—you uh, didn't really notice it until about halfway through the yeah. movie. I'd say. I'd say the most blatant hit you over the head parts were where it just randomly cuts and has scripture of Job on the board, yeah, on the screen. It right? doesn't. It also yeah. doesn't show the verse, so people who aren't familiar with the Bible maybe That's wouldn't fair. be familiar with because they didn't pick. They didn't pick all the most well-known verses from Job. Mm. Um, they just picked a couple key points, so you notice it a little, a little bit of the way through. I'd say. Yeah. Because for those who haven't seen it, I think it was about like three or four times throughout the Probably film. Four times, yeah. It would just, uh, at certain transitions of the film, it would just show up the text on the screen, kind of like a quote. And yeah, you wouldn't know it was from the Book of Job until I think the very last one it said something like Job or, uh, yeah. And so there's, yeah, a like. Uh, one of the dislikes, I think, happened. So we mentioned the fast pace early on in the film. Uh, there's kind of a flashback moment to open it up. It goes into this bar scene. Some, I think, said it was a little awkward uh, with, yeah, Elizabeth's character, Molly. And there's really cool parallelism. I think that connects the end to the beginning, Mm -hmm. how the roles flip. Uh, I wouldn't say it's completely cliche. It felt a little bit comedic. So the whole movie, I think, felt pretty uh, human and the raw emotion and the Job-like, except for those two scenes. Yeah. It kind of conflicted, but at the same time it added, almost like Shakespeare loves to do, he loves to throw your head the underwater and scenes, pull you, you mean, back The out. flirting scene yeah. at the beginning. And the We're of, like, what are we, in middle again. school? <laughs> yeah. She gets dared by her friends to go up to him, and then she really doesn't care to like him, but then five seconds later they're married and have a kid. Yeah. Uh, it was 
a little bit hard to accept until later when you see what actually happens to the kid, which I won't say yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think that makes it connect better. Yeah, it really helps heal the little gaps in that. Yeah, they left they left a thread purposely untied in the beginning, and it kind of bothers you in the back of your head as you're watching. And they finally resolve it towards the end, yeah. but it feels it's it still does feel like the beginning of the movie is a little too fast paced. Because mm-hmm. um, in a way, it's almost the source of the conflict itself that is left untied and just hidden away mm-hmm. until three quarters of the movie, maybe. Uh, and so because of that, if that was the purpose, I guess it was well at keeping it ambiguous but it kept the first three quarters of the movie feeling just kind of unnatural because of that. Yeah. Um, and then this turning point was when he gets in the vehicle accident. And this is the mechanism to drive the plot forward. He is now maybe dead, maybe transported. Did the benefactor just come in and take him somewhere else? Theologically, there's these questions of if this is the Job allegory, is he in Sheol? Is he in purgatory? Is he in heaven? Is he in hell? Is this just another reality that's completely separate from theology that is in this multiverse universe? Because if so, I am concerned about where different theological beliefs can go for people who are looking for that. Mm -hmm. Um, If you take a non-believer and they have been fed all this media information that this is a Bible story, basically, Mm -hmm. and then they come in and like, this is the Bible. This is just weird. Yeah. And then if you come in saying, no, it's just loosely based on the story of Job, but it is its own movie, and it's set in its own dystopian kind of futuristic world type event, then you can separate the theology from what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think that's up to personal opinion. Some people are like, don't mess with the source material. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that was a big critique of The Chosen, like never uh, have those idols or in cinema yeah chosen's a little different because they're trying to depict the actual events of the bible that's a good point especially when it's not just the actual events of the bible which you should already have a very high view of scripture like you're not just dealing with like one of the prophets or something you're dealing with god on earth and so playing loose and fast with jesus's character is obviously something that you don't want to be doing right um and so the chosen is a little bit in a different category the passion of the christ uh the Mm -hmm the History Channel Bible series that was out in like 2014, oh, yeah. 15. Um, those things, like they, they do have a little bit higher More level of significance accuracy. Or if you're dealing with like a historical movie, like you're not just trying to do a historical spoof. This is one thing that the Napoleon movie, yeah. haven't seen it yet, but I've seen it. What I've heard, yeah. it is not historically true. Yeah, they didn't yeah. even really, it's not that it's like not perfectly historically accurate, it's that it purposely casts aside a lot of historical um, significance. Fallacy of omission. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, with this movie, though, with being allegorical, you do get to play a little bit loose and fast with the rules. And mm-hmm. so the it does feel like the car accident thing because it's just building up with a bunch of normal life. You know, he meets this lady. They get, to get, they get together. You can see him. He's working in this new office job. Like, later in the future, you can see in the morning, he's pouring his cup of coffee. Um, he looks kind of haggard. He's not, like as jovial with his wife as he was when they were dating, like literally like three minutes before. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You're like, wow, that's jarring. Yeah. Yeah. And that was kind of weird. And you're like, what's happening? And then he gets a talk from his boss who is like this kind of 
this man who is obviously doesn't deserve to be an authority over anyone. He's kind of... <laughs> and he uh, holds resentment about the 08-09 crash. Yeah, so. you're supposed oh, to not right. like this guy. Yeah. Uh, and you can tell that you're not supposed to like him. And he's just frustrated coming out of this meeting. He's in the middle of talking to his wife when he's in his car on the way home from this meeting. Mm. And he's like, how am I supposed to do blah, blah, blah when I'm working you know, 12 hours a day or whatever. I don't know how long it was. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's like, he's yelling at his wife. And then all of a sudden you see the <laughs> semi-truck coming and boom, it hits him. And then that's like the transition. And finally, after that point, like it feels confusing, but immediately after the benefactor is introduced, like when he's like awake and he's got all these cuts in his head, he has the exact same like bandage patch on his head as John Wick, by the way. Like the inspiration. Exact same. I noticed that immediately. Um, but he was, he's like all beat up. He's got these bandages and cuts and bruises. And uh, the benefactor guy, who you don't know who he is yet, he's like, hey, are you okay, man? Are you okay? Mm-hmm. And, he's, and then the plot sort of starts to be around. So I do feel like yeah. the car accident part was a little rushed, but it, it fits. Like as soon as the, the background comes in afterward, it fits. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was, it was kind of a little rushed part of the plot, and you could, you could quibble with it. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't a massive issue. Yeah. In a weird way of flipping, do the ends justify the means? It's like, do the means justify the end here? <laughs> yeah. It builds up to where they wanted to take the film. Uh, but again, it's so it's that first, what, 20 to 40 minutes of mm-hmm. the film that you might come in and kind of be like, what am I watching? Mm-hmm. And I'd say it gets better from there. Yeah. Uh, if that's what you're going for. If you are someone who likes a good dystopian film and something that wants to make you think and enjoy yourself, then I think this film is for you with that. Uh, the next positive thing I'll let Riley take off with Sean Astin's character. Oh, yeah. Well, I was going to hit really quickly because we left, because we did mention Neil McDonough and I didn't oh, get to finish this briefly. point because I, I sidetracked myself, which I do all the time. <laughs> but Neil McDonough's take on the benefactor, he's the allegorical character for Satan. And, you know, in Christian movies, they don't always introduce the big bad guy, but when they do, it's cartoonishly evil. Like, I hate puppies, flowers are bad, there's nothing beautiful. I'm just totally evil, and also there's no Mr. reason. Mr. Evil. Yeah, there's no, yeah, Dr. Evil, Doctor, exactly. Yeah, that's his name. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Evil. evil. He's not a doctor. I didn't go to four years of evil school to be called Mr. <laughs> evil. Yeah, but, <laughs> but like, they're, Christian movie characters are always, like, parodies of evil. Like, they're so over-the-top ridiculous that it works when it's, like, VeggieTales or something right. for your little, you know, your four-, or five-, six-year-old kids. But when you're dealing with serious adult media, it gets kind of tiresome. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, or it's like, even with the, I already forgot the name of it, it's so forgettable, but even with that movie about the firemen. Oh, the Fireproof. Christian, yes, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> There's like, the, one of his coworkers is like kind of a bad guy, I guess. And he's mm-hmm. like, he's just generally unpleasant for no reason at all, and they never explore it for any yeah. reason. And so that is a very tired trope in Christian movies that needs to die. And this movie kills it. Because Neil McDonough is not ridiculously over-the-top evil. But when he's first getting introduced, he just seems like some guy who's helping Kevin get out of uh, the car accident. And then he takes him in. He's like, let's go get some lunch. And they go in this cafe, and you can tell, like, kind of there's this building existential dread. Like, all the people in the cafe are, like, on edge when they're talking to this guy. And you don't know quite what's happening. He tells Kevin he's the the benefactor, and Kevin is like, Kevin thinks he's just some nut job and he's like and then finally you figure out that this character is really evil because mm-hmm. he's telling Kevin about the deviators which are these little wristwatch things yeah. that the benefactor 
and later on other people called the shifters, who we're not immediately introduced to, can use to take people basically from one universe, sort of, one Earth, and send them to a different Earth, because every decision you make creates different timelines. <laughs> so they, Infinite we'll get to that possibilities. later. But yeah, but, and then he, he shifts away the waiter, who's yeah. like really freaked out by this point, and he's like, because Kevin's like, you're insane, prove it, prove that it works. And he shifts away the waiter, waiter. and Kevin like freaks out, and then it's the part where he finally starts praying. Um, mm-hmm. But every time that Neil McDonough shows up as a benefactor, it's not cartoonishly evil. It's really like, it's piercingly evil. Yeah. It's uh, like, especially the existential dread part. And like, in a way that f- makes you feel though that there's like something he can give you that you want. Yes. And that's where I think, because yeah, the devil never comes in this glaringly evil character in my life. He'll appeal to what you want, whether it's knowledge, mm-hmm. whether it's pride, whether it's power, whether it's wealth. And so yes, the... His character portrays that well. Yeah, the the real devil is not wearing a red jumpsuit with horns and a pointy tail and a pitchfork. A pitchfork. You know? Like that's not actually what the real devil's like. Um, which, if you want to learn more about that, you should read the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. But oh. uh, anyway, so I I thought that Neil McDonough, I expected him to be good, and he was good. He really mm-hmm. he really played his part really well, and the character of the benefactor is is really well written and kind of it makes parts of the plot that otherwise wouldn't work very well, he makes it, he sells it really well. And you're enamored with him when he's on the screen. And even something I didn't think of, but when you have a name that big, the director can often say, I want them in every scene that matters. Yeah. They had him disappear for five years in the film. Yeah, That's a pretty bold move to make when you have an audience that might be going to this movie just for him mm-hmm. and then be like, the benefactor has been missing for five for years, five and who years. knows if he'll ever come back. And here Kevin is just eating a can of baked beans yeah. while he's typing <laughs> out on his old typewriter in a hotel room mm-hmm. uh, in this dystopian world. And so, yeah, there's a lot of different levels of the plot features which take your attention deeper into the film because it leaves you wondering, like, what's going to happen next? Why did the benefactor disappear? And that's one of my dislikes is the reasoning for the benefactor disappearing was never explained. And then one day he just returns right when Kevin's about to like actually reach others with the Bible that he had typed out and also he's going to find he's his Molly. getting the shifter, finding Molly with uh, the cinema place uh, that I forget its name. But mm. um, yeah, maybe that's uh, something we can go to next with Gabriel's character because yeah, good old Sam. <laughs> so yeah, Sean Austin, who played famously played Sam in the Lord of the Rings, um, Frodo's companion throughout the journey, uh, Sean Astin sold his Gabriel character really well. So, um, once again, spoilers. This entire thing is going to be spoilers. <laughs> Get used to it. Uh, Sean Astin, his Gabriel character, is kind of like Kevin's best friend in the dystopian world. So after Kevin is stuck in this dystopian world, um, after his meeting with the benefactor, and the benefactor disappears, he's in this world that is ruled by the benefactor. And it's really dystopian. There are scary soldiers with body armor and white helmets. They're faceless. You're not supposed to think about who they are at all. Mm. Um, There are tons of things that are legal. They're obviously all living in poor, squalid conditions. And Gabriel is like Kevin's only real friend in this this world. And Gabriel, Mm. um, you don't realize that he's actually working for the benefactor, which gets introduced right, basically right at the very end, the last 20 minutes probably. Um, and you cannot tell at all. He's not playing like the cheery best friend, Sam, <laughs> yeah. but he is playing like a realist, um, you know, friend who has your back, but also is like 
you should probably not be so risky. And it feels mm-hmm. like he's looking out for Kevin the whole the whole time. And uh, really, I mean, his performance was not amazing, but now that I'm sitting here like reflecting on it, if they didn't have that character played really well, he probably would have overplayed it. Yeah, yeah, you could have completely overplayed it. If he was like so over the top cheerful, it would have been like, <laughs> this is out of place. But he he made it work, and so you didn't expect the plot twist coming towards the very end. So yeah, yeah that's I, really he did well a great said. Job. I agree. And then the whole plot over these deviators. So when you have Kevin, again, the thing which drives the movie forward is his will, his ultimate desire to get back to Molly. And he ultimately decides not to choose that, uh, or I guess technically he does, and then Mm -hmm. he gets pulled back. But when he finds, he's looking for these shifters, and each of the shifters have these deviators which allow them to cross realities. And so you see this kind of united purpose. So despite all the convoluted different elements of the film, you at least know there's one purpose. Mm-hmm. Like there's not a lot of different side objectives. Like sometimes you get the Mission Impossibles. Or like yeah. They're going here, then there, then there, then there. Oh, why? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's to get this one object thingy, to sell to this guy thingy. Yeah. But it's really like, okay, here's a man. He's a simple man. He's in a dystopian reality. Can't get back home. He just wants to find his wife again and really ask her for forgiveness or maybe go see the Molly that was before their whole falling out. Mm -hmm. Because now that he knows there's millions, infinite realities, he can find the Molly before he made a mistake and try to correct that mistake. Mm -hmm. So it's almost playing on this aspect of do our mistakes make us human or should we try to fix mistakes if given the chance? Um, is another kind of meta uh, understanding and value to kind of think about yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we get towards the end, uh, we see that for a multiverse movie, Riley mentioned a great point earlier where he said it doesn't fall into the multiverse cliches. Mm-hmm. We often see this doppelganger thing where it's like, no, you can't come into your past self or your mm-hmm. former self or your doppelganger or another reality because that will just ruin the time-space continuum. Yeah. And that's, I guess, more time travel than multiverse, but in different aspects of it, you can often miss the humanity for the extravaganza of mm-hmm. like, ooh, multiverse. This yeah. sounds so fascinating. And now we've been beat we've been beating a dead horse basically. Well yeah, that. it's like every yeah. movie genre has moved towards this multiverse thing. And really it's so that they never have to kill off characters. And they're doing kind That's of like, they're doing kind of creepy stuff now. Like in the Flash movie apparently they brought back the guy who was Superman in like the seven, 70s, 80s. I can't remember his name. Because huh. um, Dean Cain wasn't in it, or no, Brandon no, no. Ruth. It was okay. it was the movie Superman. Because uh, Christopher Reeves was not. Reeves. Reeves, no, they put a CGI they put a Christopher CGI? Reeves in the Flash movie. There's like a... Wow. Oh. It was like an end credit scene or something. But <laughs> if they're going to... Like, it was yeah. already creepy when they did it with Carrie Fisher in mm-hmm. Star Wars. For like, I wasn't yeah. a fan of that. And now they're going to do... This multiverse thing is basically one way for these companies to make money off of someone's name, image, and likeness forever. Yeah which is a terrible idea. Like, it is the worst idea ever. Um, So I'm glad that it didn't play into that trope. Mm -hmm. Um, It didn't play into explaining how the multiverse works because there's always a scene in one of these multiverse time travel, these sorts of movies, um, where they have to explain how everything works in the background and the multiverse. Have that one guy who's the resident genius on multiverse theories. Yeah, Yeah. and it's just like, oh, who's this random scientist guy who's never been in any movies in our franchise and now he knows everything about the multiverse and we're meeting him for the first time. We just have to trust him and follow him. And it's, that's stupid. I don't know (laughs) if you guys can tell. It's frustrating to me. I I don't like multiverse movies. 
So that was one reason I kind of had low expectations for this movie. Mm-hmm. And they pulled it off, to their great credit. They didn't spend tons of time. They explained the bare bones to you just in that scene with the benefactor meets Kevin in, in the, the cafe. Yeah. And that was all you really needed to know. And you didn't need to know too much. There is one scene where after Kevin finally gets a deviator, the little device on his wrist that helps him shift realities, after he gets a deviator, he crosses into a couple different realities, mm-hmm. and it's it's really helping to tie up a lot of the loose ends from the beginning. Um, yeah. Not all of them, but a couple of them. And one of them, he finally meets another Kevin, which you've been expecting the whole <laughs> movie because the right. multiverse movie, and it's really brief. It's probably a two, yeah. three-minute interaction. Um, and it's not over the top, but you're just supposed to see what a Kevin who took the deal with the benefactor is like mm-hmm. versus our Kevin who rejected the deal with the benefactor. And really, they, they keep the multiverse part to the bare bones, and they don't let it interfere with the actual characters in the story. In other words, this movie is not about the multiverse. The multiverse is a part of this movie, which is, I think, the right way to deal with it yeah. in the movie. And that's where I think the one Rotten Tomatoes go about it has humanity, mm-hmm. except it's a little kind of wonky with how it goes about that. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the fairest depiction. There's this very human element to it. It's not your crazy sci-fi film where the characters are almost just the side plot to the multiverse. This is more the multiverse is the side plot to the characters, mm-hmm. which I think was yeah really wholesome in that. Uh, and then some of the symbolism. So like the open tomb necklace, uh, I originally liked it just because that was a really cool concept. I've never seen anything like it. Mm-hmm. And then Riley, you thought a little differently. Uh, yeah. So he hit. So there's this necklace that uh, Kevin gives to Molly. In, mm-hmm. I think towards the beginning. Yeah. Uh, it would have but, been after their son had yeah, uh, been presumably which, dead, which we'll have to talk about in a second here. But yeah. he gives her this necklace, and it's like an open circle that's halfway intersected with the closed circle. It sort of looks like infinity, but it's supposed to be the open tomb. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he ha- later, there's another scene where he's explaining his tattoo of the open tomb to, I think, his neighbor, um, who Paris plays, Patel plays. Yeah, I Matthew and the Chosen. Yeah, um, and that's fine. It's, there's only a few parts in the movie that come off as preachy. Like, because it is supposed to be an allegory, I think it's... I think it's totally fine, but it's the only part of the movie that comes off as like really explicit. Yeah. And you know, I think it sort of depends. If you take your unbelieving friend, they might roll their eyes at that part. They might not. Um, it didn't bother me that much, but in trying to be critical of the movie, like this is the one part that could maybe be I a little preachy. I could see how, but yeah. The whole movie targeting. writ large, not preachy at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's trying to tell you a story, not teach you a lesson. That's what I'd say. Yeah. And teaches different lessons than mm-hmm. your typical ones you'd expect. Yeah. Uh, and so now for this final part where we see general misdirection. I think the plot twist with Gabriel was really well done. But there's also this kind of second plot twist or maybe just this uh, gap left with his son. Mm-hmm. So why is... Kevin, why did Kevin actually die or get hit in the car accident in the first place? Or why was the benefactor able to even come into his life? Well, he was having marital distress. What was going on there? Mm-hmm. Well, we didn't know really until about three quarters of the film when it turns out that Kevin's son was killed 
Presumably, it doesn't go into too many details after he wandered off. He was like maybe, what, five years old? He's a little a little, little tiny kid in the grocery store, and it was mm-hmm. Kevin and Molly, and their kid walks away. Yeah. And then the, him and Molly are looking all through the store that gets more and more frantic, and, they, and then it skips to them at the home. The sheriffs show up on the door. Or with whatnot. his hat. Yeah. And so they're like, you don't know what happened, but basically his little boy is, is gone. He's gone. And that goes back to the necklace, too, the open tomb. It's supposed to be a symbol of hope. Like, we know where he's at. The tomb is open. There's no death here. Um, So with that, though, that causes their marriage to falter. Uh, There's a lot of probably blame there. And then he ends up getting in the car accident. And then it continues. Uh, And so in the end, where we see this climax, so everything is building to this moment. He's in the cinema setting, which is where he can view other realities, which are supposedly at random, but all of a sudden he can only see Molly. And in that moment, uh, he ends up being able to shift to her reality. And this is, I think, a really, really impactful scene for the aspect that's like everything you've been working for for the past five years in the film, you're here. And now Molly doesn't want to be with him. Like mm-hmm. she's, I think, married at the time, someone else, or at least dating someone else. She's dating someone else. Yeah, she's yeah. dating someone else. No ring. At an art gallery. Uh, and then he ends up like being there and then gets pulled back by mm-hmm. the benefactor to the other reality. He and has this all, long conversation yeah. with Molly, and it's sort of like it mentions their kid in a little more detail. That's and he's, true. And he basically yeah. apologizes for his conduct. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is his Molly. It's just the problem is, is that he's been gone. For those his, five years. In his own, yeah, reality. So, mm-hmm. anyway. Thank you, yeah, to clarify, it was the same Molly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, once he gets pulled back, so now he's now left with this choice. Where just like in Job, where the devil can do anything except kill Job, he threatens him with the choices. Is Do you choose Tina, the waitress from the beginning? The one who got shifted away. Who got shifted away. So maybe he feels some sort of guilt. Like, he has this chance to right his wrongs. And then he also has the chance to choose a Molly that is going to be like the perfect one for him. Um, or was it to actually see, be with that Molly? I'm I don't think it was that sure. Molly specifically. I think, he, I think he said you could choose any through mm-hmm. the yeah, infinite realities. So when left with that choice, so he had been only planning to try to get back to Molly. And then in this one moment, he has his hopes for Molly really destroyed. And the benefactors here saying, make the choice. And he ends up choosing. Tina and the benefactor did not want that to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty clear. And there's one thing where you can really feel the tension mm-hmm. in that decision. It isn't so obvious where you're like, oh yeah, he's gonna yeah. choose that. Benefactor well, also, want to. the benefactor like sweetens the deal in appearance at Ooh, first because yeah. if he wants to choose Molly, he has to work for the benefactor, and that's the deal. That's why Kevin doesn't want to do it. And yeah. he's like, how about this? Not only will if you work for me, will I let you go back with Molly? I'll also make sure that Tina's okay and Tina's, Tina's okay. well fed and she has a great place to live and everything's going to work out for Tina. Oh, I forgot too. about that. Um, and right. when he sweetens the deal like this, uh, Kevin rejects it because he's like, mm-hmm. because he, he's like, because if I picked you, I wouldn't have any more choices. It'd be my last choice. And the, yeah. this freaks out the benefactor who's <laughs> like, no, you know me, I'm all about choice, blah, blah, blah. Um, and once again, not cartoonishly evil, but like his nice guy facade kind of fades in and out, which makes his character yeah. really believable. But at the end, he gets kind of desperate, and cl- clearly you can see more and more that he only wants Kevin 
it's not really a choice. He only wants Kevin to peck Molly so he can have Kevin. Have Kevin. And Kevin says, no, pushes away his future with Molly in order to A, not serve the benefactor, and B, uh, let Tina go back to his family, to her family, who Kevin had accidentally shifted away, or maybe purposefully, because <laughs> it depends. Yeah. But, uh, and that is kind of like, that's the climax of the film. And the whole last scene is so well managed. Hopefully you're only listening to this if you already watched the movie, because, <laughs> I mean, we spoiled so much of it that really you shock be factor listening destroyed. to this. Uh, unless you, I mean, really, you should go watch this movie, because the ending part is so well managed. But anyway, mm-hmm. the, the benefactor like freaks out, grabs a gun from Gabriel, who is like you figure out in this last scene also is working for him. He grabs yeah. the gun from Gabriel, points it at Kevin's Ready head, and Kevin is very at peace with this decision, and then everything turns to white. white. And then all of a sudden you see Kevin is back with Molly, and not only does he have one kid, one kid. running around, <laughs> Molly's pregnant, so it's insinuated that they're going to have two. Jeez. So it's like, it's like the allegory of Job where he gets everything back twice, twice as much as he had before. Mm-hmm. So the movie is... that. That part of the movie, the climax, is really, really well done. Definitely my favorite part of the film. Yeah. I'd say, yeah. Yeah. And also, the, my second part was with Paris Patel's character in the hotel room, where mm-hmm. it's, yeah, the dystopian world, and he has his two young girls come up to him, and then they sing him, like, let the light shine. Mm-hmm. And then he realized that, so Paris's character had only been seeing scripture over the shoulder of Gabriel's character. And mm-hmm. so it was like really disconnected. And you thought I was led to believe like his character was going to be the shifters or mm-hmm. he was somehow the bad guy. Or he was spying and, on Kevin. Or he was yeah. spying that way. And then it turns out that he was the faithful and he was the one actually breaking all the laws of that society to raise his daughters with this hope. And then they sing this song. So that was also just really touching in an original way that didn't feel cliche and didn't feel preachy. But that and the climax, I think, were like the two scenes mm-hmm. really stuck out. Yeah. I mean, one thing we could talk about a little bit is like that we've kind of been referencing every time that we've brought up something that we like or don't like is the realism of the movie. Even though it is an allegory, it's not like, uh, it's not over the top. And there are weird things happening, but when the weird things happen, it feels like they happen in the real world. Like you would be freaked out if this (laughs) happened in the real world. There's no. The great what if. Yeah, yeah, he gets shot. Um, one of the when he's in the mm. dystopian world, That's he's true. getting chased by these soldiers because he thinks he can maybe kill the benefactor or at least get the benefactor somewhere else <laughs> or something. Um, and the benefactor shifts him in and out of his <laughs> room. room. And when yeah. he charges out of the room through the door, he gets shifted right back into the street where the benefactor is in the cafe and the soldiers are pursuing him. And he gets shot like right kind of out through the outside of his bicep. Mm-hmm. And he's like. You can clearly see he's in, he's in pain and can't manage his arm for like you know a good it's amount. It's not of like movie. the invulnerable hero. That yeah, it's not <laughs> a superhero it's movie. Yeah. It's not un, like sometimes a, like John Wick is cool because he's like shooting and killing people, but also like no, you cannot walk into a room of forty <laughs> people with machine guns and come out alive. I don't care if you're James Bond. That's not happening. You know, mm. so it the realism of the movie is one of the things that makes it really really watchable. Mm-hmm. Nothing nothing about this movie is fake it's not that it's not mythical it's that nothing about the movie is unbelievable there's nothing in the movie that happens that is like that's stupid that's cartoonish that's over the top uh 
that I, I don't believe this when I'm watching it. And that's not the feeling you get at all watching the movie. The realism of this movie is probably, if you were to look at writ large, its biggest selling point. Yeah. Yeah, again, that basic humanity and realism, mm -hmm. I think, yeah, is a great step in the positive direction. So unless you want to mention any last thing, are we ready to introduce the big question? Highlighted? I, I think we've hit pretty much everything that we need to hit. We want to hit? Yeah. So you, the audience, this is hopefully the question that you're asking yourselves is, do you think this is the positive direction in Christian cinema or cinema of this type, assuming the premise of the purpose to prioritize entertainment above a sermon or something preachy? And I'll start out by saying yes. It's not on the cinematic level of other multiverse films, like Avengers Infinity War was the first that came to mind, or some of the other blockbusters. But taking into account, it had a budget of only $6 million and is currently about breaking even. The general overall special effects, storyline, acting, the emotional weight of the film, the human weight of the film, and the film being tethered to biblical truths that aren't contradictory, while also being entertaining, do give me a lot of hope for this current trend. And I want to give a thumbs up to Angel Studios and think that the continuation of this is going to be open for everyone. It's not really just appealing to Christians alone, but Christians and non-Christians alike to really watch it, to think about it, and to see how it does affect their life. Um, and ultimately though, I think this needs to be said is that we cannot place our faith in any film to be a substitute for our own call to minister to others. This is often a really easily stumbling block we can come where we're like, oh, the passion of the Christ is so amazing. I'm going to show all my non-believer friends it and they're going to be so moved that they're going to follow Jesus now and they're going to realize the fault of their ways. No. Mm -hmm. Although I'm not saying it can't happen, it's this question of we cannot place our faith in any film to be a substitute for our own call to minister to mm -hmm. others. Yep. We have a job. We're supposed to evangelize to people. <laughs> now, as far as I would answer the question of whether this is a positive next step for Christian cinema, um, I mean, and does it, you know, prioritize entertainment above the sermon, like you were saying? Mm -hmm. um, I'd say yes. After years and years of really poor Christian movies like God's Not Dead or Fireproof that managed to simultaneously come off as both preachy and rigid, the shift is a much welcome break from the bland. Uh, the movie's two best assets are Neil McDonough, the benefactor, and Christopher Palaha, Kevin Garner, who play their characters truly well. Neil McDonough's take on the benefactor, the archetypal Satan figure, is not a cartoonish parody of evil, it's unsettling and menacing not a common portrayal of the typical antagonist in Christian films. Kevin Garner uh, plays a normal guy turned action hero in the vein of a Jason Statham character or Bob Odenkirk's character from Nobody without being a gruesome parody of this kind of action character. There are minor squabbles I have with some of the movie's pacing and plot decisions, but it can't be argued that this movie is not a massive step forward for Christian movies. Yeah. And one thing we wanted to do at the end here, because... <laughs> Who knows, maybe we'll get to review more movies together. Maybe we'll get to go watch movies together and do, I mean, we're just experimenting here. This is not a normal crux of the matter episode, but we'd like to maybe continue uh, and continue with doing, you know, some cinema criticism because I've enjoyed this. It's been a good episode so far. It has. Well, it's enjoyable. Thing, yeah. <laughs> one thing we want to do to, to cap it off at the end was give the movie a final score on one to ten. Um, 
and where the one is a, is like Morbius or something or Classic. one of the worst movies I've ever seen, <laughs> The Dark Crystal, which you haven't. Don't watch it. It's terrible. Um, and 10 is something like Gone with the Wind, It's a Wonderful Life, maybe more recently, like the Dark Knight trilogy that Christopher Nolan did. Um, those are movies that we'd consider up around a 10. So for me, I'd give this movie a solid seven. There are real tangible issues with a little bit of the plot, mostly pacing, not so much the actual material plot decisions. And the pacing makes it, you know, so that it kind of actually can be a little tough to get through the beginning. But it immediately makes up for it by tying up all of the loose ends at the end of the movie in a clean way. It's not corny. Like we said, it's realistic. The acting by the main two characters who you see on screen for most of the time is phenomenal. I think the supporting cast is, I would say, a little bit above average. It's not phenomenal, but you know, one or two different personnel decisions, maybe this movie doesn't work as well. Um, so especially with Sean Astin, Elizabeth Tabish, Paris Patel, really sell their roles well. I wouldn't say extremely well, but well. Um, so this is, yeah, this is a six and a half, seven type movie for me. I, I rounded up. So yeah. we went with seven. <laughs> yeah, and I think also last thing was Brock Heasley. I could only find he's directed two films. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, for a budding, up-and-coming director, uh, if that factors into the decision, I hate seven, I always call a cop-out answer. <laughs> I was going to say 7.2. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, and I'll, I'll stick with that. Locked in 7.2. Mm-hmm. I think for all the similar reasons as Riley, uh, we view films very similarly with how we enjoy them. I like leaving... Uh, as kind of this amateur movie maker myself, I like shot composites. So I loved the color correction of the film. It really felt you drawn into this world that I think every dystopian movie needs to have. And then also the curious mix of genres with almost like the romance and the sci-fi and the dystopian. It, they didn't contrast each other terribly. It really did have this human element that crosses all genres uh, and left you with, I think, a message that needs to be uh, seen by everyone. And whether that is in this capacity uh, is the question, but it's definitely that positive next step in, I think, our current cultural moment. So for cultural relative films, when we see movies like the Marvels tank at the box office, because <laughs> perhaps they're just completely disconnected from the culture and reality, mm-hmm. to this film, which might be very much slanted in wonder current demographic or targeting certain people, uh, does have this human aspect to it that I think people should realize does have some weight that plays Mm -hmm. out in our own lives. Yeah, and this has always been a long-running debate with Christian media, is should you watch it because it's Christian and you're trying to support other Christian creators over sort of our secular culture, which obviously in many cases does not value Christian values in the same way as we do, or should we watch it because it's good and because Mm -hmm. it puts out some level of entertainment that, you know, that it actually fulfills its role. It's a movie, so you're supposed to sit down and be entertained. And, you know, I come somewhere down in the middle between those two. I think a lot of the times people will sort of take advantage of Christian's good graces mm-hmm. and just, you know, people who are not particularly good will rebrand themselves as, for example, Christian rappers, <laughs> Christian hip-hop artists. People who don't make it in cinema will become Christian movie actors sometimes. And this is actually a pattern that happens more than you would think not to throw anyone in particular under the bus. And so, because Christians are more than willing to go out and watch Christian films. But I think for Christian media to take the next steps, it has to have some sort of 
uh, real entertainment value without necessarily sacrificing its values. And I think the shift does a really good job coming down in between those two. Um, and so I would definitely recommend, hopefully if you're listening to this, you've already seen it. Um, hopefully you haven't just listened to it just because you're a loyal listener. We appreciate you anyway. Yes, but we do. We would, we would very much like that you, know, you go watch the movie first, maybe listen to this review, and then maybe watch it again and see whether you agreed with our criticisms. And uh, as always, if you have watched it or if you're planning on watching it, email us at cruxofthematterpodcast at gmail.com to share your thoughts. If, we think, if you think we missed anything or if you have other films that you'd like us to review, if you guys want us to watch Tombstone, guess who is more than happy to do it? <laughs> I, I have, have not yet seen it, so yeah. yeah. Email us that one. Yeah, please. <laughs> so yeah, thank you guys for listening. Awesome. Um, I'm Riley Stansberry. And I'm Landon Connor. And this has been The Crux of the Matter. Mm-hmm.